Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroya, the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software. Repeat successful runs and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at arroya.io. All right, everyone. How's it growing, friends? Welcome to Office Hours, your source for free cannabis cultivation education. My name is Mandy, and I'll be moderating solo for the show today, but I'm not all alone. We have Keisha and Jason phoning in from Hall of Flowers out in Santa Rosa. Rachel's also there. Hey. But before we get the scoop from them, you know how we do it around here. It's episode 64. We're going live over on YouTube momentarily. So if you're logging on over there, make sure you send us your questions, and I'll get those over to the team. If you're active on social media, be sure you're following us on all of the platforms. So we're on Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, LinkedIn, and Social Club. If you're live with us here and you have a question, you can type it in the chat anytime. And if your question gets picked, we'll either have you unmute yourself or I can ask your question for you. We're here with Seth in the studio today, and we have Team Arroya out and about at Hall of Flowers. I have a feeling that this is going to be a really fun sesh. Hey, everyone. How's it going? Keisha, Jason, Rachel. What's up? Hi, everybody. We got Rachel in the house. This is our first trade show together. I'm so happy she's here. It looks really, really fun. There's a ton of people out. What, what's been your experience so far? You just got there. Yeah, so uh, basically overstimulation. Um, it's hard to be surrounded by so many amazing California brands and focus on one thing. So we haven't made a lot of progress, but we're having a great time walking the show. We've met up with a couple clients. We want to visit all of our clients who are here today and then make some new friends, of course. And then I've also been shopping because I can't help myself. Uh, Rachel, so what, do you, what do you want the folks to know about your time here? Are you having a good time? Yeah. She's having fun. Yeah. She, I don't know if you, sorry, but I realized I'm the one with the headphones on. (laughs) Rachel is amazing. She's on our support side and she normally watches and participates in office hours live with us, but now she's on the road with the team. So good to see you, Rachel. Jason, what are you doing? Where are you? Uh, I'm actually like 20 feet away from Paige and Rachel right now. We're just hanging out in the uh, smoking lounge. I think I'm getting a little bit of a contact buzz going on after some lunch. And, uh, awesome conversations this morning. Been planting the seed, increasing product awareness, uh, meeting new faces, connecting with some of our existing clients, and got the, the afternoon's going to be pretty busy. I think it's going to be all we can do to catch up with uh, the boosts that we know we need to. So we're just uh, running around, making meets. This is one of the biggest shows in the entire country. So what are you, what are you guys learning so far? Uh, smelling a lot of incredible flower. Genetics are on point. Um, nobody has recognized me yet, but Rachel has been recognized due to the Arroyo pullover. And then, of course, her experiences with the customers. So that is always really, really fun. Um, you know, I've actually been talking to a couple of brands that are, like, talking about expanding out of California. As everybody knows, this has been, uh, this market's the biggest, but it's also got a lot of challenges. And so people are getting really, really creative around, like, expanding to opportunities in other states. I'm hearing a lot about the East Coast, New York and New Jersey. Um, so that's what I've heard so far. How about you, Jason? Yeah. Uh Definitely been a, a couple of conversations about the California market rebounding. Um, prices per pound have been uh, rising this year versus what we were seeing into last year. So that's always helpful to 
to keep things uh, stimulated and keep cultivators growing their facilities and their product as much as possible. So uh, that's nice. Also had a couple clients that are, like you said, expanding out to different markets. Uh, that's how they're getting into Oklahoma. Um, just a, a great show. I kind of, I was expecting it to be maybe a little bit smaller here this spring, but it is popping. You can see there is a uh, pretty substantial crowds here and got lucky yesterday. Things were, were raining. Um, but today it's all cleared up. Perfect weather in Santa Rosa. Wow. It looks amazing. I know Seth wishes he was there. We were just commenting on the beautiful weather. Seth, do you have any questions for the team? Uh, no crazy questions. I just mostly hope they're enjoying themselves and taking advantage of that good weather. (laughs) I know, uh, Rachel and Jason living up here. We've kind of had a long gray spring or more like winter and the switch finally flipped. But, uh, yeah, it looks like a good time. There's always great people to meet. I, I love that part of the country. I love getting down to Sonoma County and hanging out with growers. And then also you get you get to be in wine country, which is, you know, pretty beautiful and fun and also delicious. So, you know, I'm I'm jealous, but I'll be down there next week. Don't worry. Excellent. Yes. Yeah. Seth and I, by the way, we're going to be at the Emerald Cup Awards. So keep an eye out for us there. Uh, But no, I feel so lucky to be in California. We have, in my opinion, the best cannabis in the world, but it's only because I haven't made it out to Maine yet. Apparently it's not a puppet out there. Uh, But I would love to, in these uh, next few minutes, y'all want to kind of see what's going on inside uh, one of the buildings? Oh my gosh. Yes. Take us through. Okay. Awesome. I'm going to flip the camera around. But yep, we're going to go for a little walk. Um, it's going to get noisy in there, and I'll probably log off before we do get too noisy. But I don't know if you can see Jason. What's up, Jason? Take a little walk. So, yeah, no, there's a lot of. It's a good time to chill out. It's lunchtime. It's nice weather. People are enjoying their purchases and samples. And there's also a lot of extremely cute dogs here. Look at this one, you guys. Oh, posted another one in our stories. I'm so sorry. I'm bumping into people. Backing folks down. Okay, here we go. We're not the only ones doing interviews. As you can see. All right, and there's the full view of where we just came from. What's up, Rachel? What's up, Jason? All right, here we go. Building A. Oh, let me show you. Look at the list of brands that are just in this building. Hello. Oh, dog alert. Hi, dog alert. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I love this. I'm living vicariously through you. Oh, I know. Mandy, you got to come to this one. This is is up your alley. Look at all these brands in here. Just in this building. Wow. Okay, so which ones are on your list to definitely hit up while you're there? Oh, my goodness. Wow. There's probably a lot. Honestly, yeah. I'm just going to go booth by booth. We're uh, going to hit traditional. We got Finest in here. Sog Army, Stizzy, Cam, Golden State. It's actually not. Is it? it, How's the sound for y'all? Is it noisy? No, you're doing good. No, it's actually fine. Yeah. You guys want to go to the Stizzy booth? Yes. Sure, let's, let's go check, check out, out the CD I... booth. But the great thing is you get to take in the scene as we as we walk. Uh, a lot of an home... inside look at Hall of Flowers, yeah. Santa Rosa. Shout out to Cam. I got one of these bags too. Thank you, Anna. <laughs> yeah, we're really lucky. Here's the crew at Sog Army right here. <laughs> 
Nice. Look at this. Don't need to spend any money on airfare. We got you. <laughs> that looks frosty, Jason. Uh, a lot of other, some ancillary businesses, folks in the data world. Here's our friend's hug set. Friends, Sam. Need to have them back on the show, actually. Shout out to Headset. All about that data. Excellent. I also just like, I love looking at the marketing, checking out these wonderful brands. Dog Alert. I also Dog know alert. this wonderful person right here. Open Equity Collective in the house. Big fans of theirs. Oh, John Penn. I'm a fan of John Penn's too. There's, it's just too much. It's overstimulating. All right, here we go. We're going in the CD booth. Oh, wow. Yeah, let's go this way. I'm going to have to text hey, some people. Guys. That's impressive. Yeah, let's go. Taking the long way in. Here we go. I mean, look at this booth. Ah, what? Okay. Our friend that's easy. Yes. Wow, what okay. a setup. Oh, my gosh. There's so much going on at the show. Oh, my goodness. I also need to go shopping. So <laughs> there's that. Hey, Jason's holding it down there. I'm going to keep walking. Awesome. <laughs> really nice food. This sounds amazing. Everything looks amazing. I can only imagine how amazing it smells. Um, <laughs> I know really that we... I know that we caught you guys around lunchtime and you guys have pretty much just arrived. So I think that we will um, not keep you for very much longer. Do you guys want to leave us with any parting thoughts or um, yeah. What, what, um, what do you guys yeah, no, just to anybody who is at Hall of Flowers today, be sure to hit us up. We're walking around. We'll be here all day. And uh, yeah, just, just our boy is out here. Those are my last words. How about you, Jason? Um, just ditto you. you. You got us covered. All right, y'all. Have a good show. We'll see you next time. Have a good show, y'all. Bye, y'all. Bye. Awesome. Well, it's just you and me, Seth. Yeah, I forgot to tell Jason. He better be careful. The contact high might be not so much a contact high and more of the food. You got to watch out for that. When in oh, Sonoma yeah. County, you got you know. to double check before you eat things out there. Yeah, just go for it. You know, take a chance. Who knows? <laughs> Seth is always living on the edge. Love it. <laughs> how's, how's your week been? How are you doing? Uh, pretty good. You know, coming off of a lot of travel, about to hit the road again. But uh, this week it's spring finally hit here in the Northwest. I'll probably be teased. We'll probably have another blizzard. But it goes back and forth, doesn't good. it? Yeah. Yeah. Just fresh off of Puerto Rico. Um, that was pretty cool to go see the emerging medical market down there and the kind of the, uh, explosion of demand on the island that's really pushing some of these growers to take it to the next level that's been very interesting um it was a very very exploratory and educating trip so i'm i'm very excited that's exciting i uh, would have thought you'd have a, a darker tan coming back from puerto rico um, you know indoor cultivation is more popular there than outdoor. okay okay <laughs> so, i guess that doesn't surprise think, me the, the but tropical that, that's exciting to hear maybe, yeah, yeah. No, I I should have more of a tan next time, next week. You're going back. So. Yeah, next Thursday when we talk, I'll be a little more tan. <sighs> okay, well, you guys know how we have the questions. You guys, we have write-in questions. We're already getting them on YouTube. So, Seth, are you ready for these? Yep, throw them at me. All right, I'm going to start with some of the ones that are getting in over on YouTube. 
Andrew wrote in, hey, during my last week of flower, my plants aren't drinking nearly as much, and I can't hit my 25 to 30% drybacks in 22 hours to reach higher drybacks to take it to 30 plus hours. They're in two-gallon cocoa. BPD is at 1.3. Temperature is 73 degrees Fahrenheit. Humidity is at 53%. Should I go smaller on my pot size for the strains not achieving the higher drybacks? Personally, I would worry a lot less about that total dryback percentage. If you're hitting 15 to 20, that's perfectly adequate for the plant. What we're looking for is the ability to actually go for that 22-hour dryback. So if you can accomplish a 22-hour dryback with 22 or even 23 without going to a bigger or smaller pot, in your case, it sounds like you're actually pretty well-sized. You know, going to a smaller pot might allow you to bulk more just because you get a faster dryback, but... You know, that really goes back to this question where when we're talking about dryback, that's kind of the uh, the sum of a lot of different factors going in. So what's your VPD like? What's your heat like? What's your light source like? What is that immediate two millimeters around the leaf surface looking like? And as long as we're seeing enough dryback to basically get enough oxygen into the rooting medium to not go anaerobic, that's enough. So honestly, right now, I would stay with what you're doing and realize that you now have, I mean, unless your yields are really suffering, which I kind of doubt they are. Um, and if they are, you know, we're probably looking at more like getting your PPFD up and your CO2 levels up. Otherwise, I think you have a pretty appropriate pot to uh, plant size. You know, I would, I would keep rocking that. And then again, remind yourself if you're not getting that dry back, that longer dry back time is helping your plant focus on, you know, floral production and quality overall rather than bulking. Awesome. Thanks, Seth. Yeah, Andrew, let us know if you have any follow-up questions. I'm going to keep going down our list from YouTube. So we have a question. Hey, guys, what are your recommendations on irrigation strategies after transplanting rooted clones? I'm running three-liter pots, and I'm struggling to get them to dry back in the first week. My temps are 28 Celsius, and humidity is at 70 should I be giving them small shots even before a proper dryback? Uh, yeah. I mean, the uh, short story long, I'll say it this way, is the answer is yes. You're going to want to put on, you know, a tiny, like, and we're talking 1% of your total pot volume or less. So really small shot, you know, in a three liter pot, we're talking about 30 milliliters. So we're going to put on that small shot every day to keep water movement going down through the block. That's going to reoxygenate the block and avoid an anaerobic environment. And what that's going to do also is provide the roots a path to colonize. So basically the roots need to follow that water movement down and go into the empty spaces created by that water movement moving down. So we want to stimulate that root development basically every day. And usually that what that looks like is one to two 1% shots per day going up to day three and four. But if you have some kind of substrate monitoring technology, um, you can look at it and go, okay, what I want to do is ride down those micro shots from, let's say, 65, 70% if we're talking about rock wool, usually 40 to 50% if we're talking about cocoa brand, depending, of course, some go, you know, higher into that 60 to 70% range. But what we want to see is an overall 15 to 20% dryback from initial hydration. So if we were at 70%, I want to hit 55 or 50% volumetric water content before I actually apply a true P1 strategy and go back to field capacity. And that's really just optimizing, you know, 
the reality that we have to dry that out. We do have to wait for root development, but it's taking advantage of a tool where we can actually push that root development and help it along. Awesome. Those are great notes to keep in mind. Um, yeah, let us know if you have any follow-up questions over there. Um, I'm going to move on to some of the, the questions we got in on Instagram this week. Mana Seeds wants to know, how important is ripening if you're going for extracts only? <clears throat> that depends on what... So basically that's going out to chemotype, right? Like what kind of cannabinoid content, <coughs> actual cannabinoids and content do we want to pull out of this plant? So if we look at any of our cannabinoids and then that also extends to some terpenes, we have a biosynthetic pathway where certain compounds are formed before those molecules are modified into other compounds. So if I'm looking for an extract, for instance, with really high CBD, high THCA, I might be harvesting more at like six weeks, but it's all strain dependent and looking at what do I want out of it. Now, if I'm looking for maximum extractability, maximum terpenes, maximum cannabinoids, what I might be looking at is running a totally different steering strategy where instead of promoting, you know, dense bud growth, I'm actually looking for loose, easy to extract bud growth, whether that's, you know, through mechanical washing or chemical extraction. But the reality is I want to look at what my, if I'm going for extract now, it's, it's not about pounds per light anymore. It's about total cannabinoid content produced out of that lot of flour. So what, what do I want to get out of it? And that's really what it comes down to. You know, personally, I've had some strains that looked like, uh, well, your classic hash plant, they look kind of swaggy. They're real greasy. <laughs> but then when we go to extract, we actually get a really good return on them because their ratio of, you know, bigger to smaller trichomes is such that they have a lot more of these small trichomes that I can actually wash off and get my full melt out of. Or that looser bud structure allows different solvents to get in and actually do a more complete extraction. But ripening is important because, you know, any of these cannabinoids or terpenes that are developing, they're only going to have their prime concentrations at a certain time under certain conditions. So if I want, you know, uh, let's say on one strain for my extraction, I really want a high mercine value. I want a high THC, not THCA value then ripening becomes very important. You know, I think we can all look at different strains we've harvested over time and say, Hey, this one has a very different smell, you know, like let's say one run, we had to harvest it at 52 days versus 60 days or 63. We, we might actually see a different expression in terms of, you know, uh, terpenes and cannabinoids that come off that. So a big thing when you're in the extract in the extraction game, especially specifically, if that's what we're growing for, is consistency and then nailing down like what is that chemotype we want what is the return we want on certain cannabinoids and terpenes to give us that flavor profile that cannabinoid profile and then you know farther extension is like once we get into the medical world are we looking for thcv some of these more rare cannabinoids that do only develop in the later stages of that biosynthetic pathway so it really does go back to like asking yourself, what do you want? Yeah. What do you want? Uh, what, what kind of data do you need to collect to make that run repeatable? Because when we're, you know, when we're talking about, you know, extracts, um, the same strain can have a different expression depending on harvest time, how it's grown temperatures. I mean, there's a lot of factors that go into that. And as a grower for extraction, your main goal is to make it repeatable, right? You want your final product to have 
the, the weight and oil you need to make your business profitable. And then the same composition every time with minimal processing effort. This is a great discussion. I feel like we should do a whole topic just about extracts. Um, Cause we could deep dive into that. I feel like Please, um, we should get, a, we should get a few extractors on the board and have a talk yes. about this. Cause I'm sure I they feel like we comment. have a couple Randy Calicori um, yeah. shout out, but yeah, no, that's it's, a great, great it's answer. It's an eternal Thank battle you to get, to get a repeatable product, you know, especially when we're talking about the higher quality extracts that are more on that craft production level, you know, just like when we look at uh, wine or whiskey or anything like that, like once we go to process goods, there's that extraction process, the repeatability, and then, you know, the skill of the extractor. And I'm sure all of them can comment on how difficult it is sometimes to get that same product they want over and over. And also just to get that consistency from the material incoming. Oh yeah, for sure. Uh, Mikey just wrote in the head of our lab and co-owner of the dab, uh, dab daddy brand would happy to come on in the future. Oh yeah. Let's look that up. Yeah. That would be fun. We love this discussion. Uh, it's super important too. This is the future of cannabis. You guys. Um, awesome. Well, I think we have another question that came in over on YouTube. So Jacob wants to know, can you explain BRICS levels, how to measure, how to increase, and what range do we want them in at each stage of growth? Uh, well, to be perfectly honest, I don't typically look at BRICS too much in cannabis. BRICS is a measure of how much sugar we have inside of our plant tissue. Um, so if you're taking it over time series, much like uh, tissue analysis, we can start to develop what kind of values we want to see in a healthy plant, right? And I'm not going to comment to that on cannabis because I'm much more familiar with it in tomatoes or grapes. And that's a fruit, not a flower. So typically what we would want to see is rising bricks throughout our generative stage and our bulking stage and then dropping bricks during ripening. Basically, you know, right back to the good old black ash argument. If we take glucose or fructose and try to burn it, we end up with black carbon. So essentially, like if we're talking about cannabis ripening, we want to see a reduction in bricks throughout ripening and then a fairly, you know, in re relative to what we would see early on in bulking, let's say a fairly low bricks value at the end. Um, I'm excited to see this come into cannabis, but in terms of actual values to assign to it, I couldn't comment as much. And I will really stress that bricks has its primary importance in fruit vegetables, and then really in wine production. When we get to grapes, like we're looking at how much sugar, how much alcohol availability might be there. <laughs> so absolutely pay attention to it. But the best data you're going to get is looking at it through a time series and then starting to relate that to overall quality at the end of your run. Everyone write that down. <laughs> uh, I know I was. Um, or I'm, I'm at least going to transcribe I'll, this I'll, later. I'll get some data. I'll work on it. I'll, I'll give some anecdotal data here. I just, I need to start testing for it. Haven't done that ah, too much. This is exciting. Yes. Yes. We'd love to hear back about that. Awesome. Okay. Let me see. What's our next question. Okay. Andrew asked a question on YouTube. When I'm irrigating to achieve vegetative uh, bulking, so weeks four to six, and we're trying to hit those 10 to 15% drybacks, what negative outcomes can arise when we go under 15% on our dryback or greater than 15% on our dryback? I'm sorry. Um, there's not really, I mean, so basically the biggest thing to watch out for there is uh, higher ECs, make sure you're pushing enough runoff that your pH isn't drifting down. 
And otherwise, that's probably a sign that you might have some trouble ripening in the last two weeks. You know, if we've got a 15 to 25 percent dryback during bulking, which means we're irrigating right out to two hours before lights off. Um, that means if we try to go back to irrigating to only four hours after lights on, then we're going to have a problem maintaining that 22 hour dryback without putting a corrective shot on, which is or a maintenance shot, you know, two hours before lights on bringing it back up to not over dry. And at that point, we've kind of compromised our generative strategy and ripening. So is it a bad thing specifically for bulking? No, but it's going to present some challenges quite potentially later on. And the corrective solution there might be flipping a little bit smaller plant and up increasing your plant density or up, you know, upping your pot size. If you're in a one gallon, maybe look at a gallon and a half or a two gallon with the same size plant to give you a little more padding during that ripening phase. So you have the ability to not compromise and focus mainly on quality. It always goes back to that, right? Thank you for that. Um, we had another question come in over on YouTube. Another question for you with regards to large facilities running cocoa pots, what are your best practices and protocols regarding prepping the medium for transplant? Uh, when it comes to cocoa, there's a few different ways to go about it. I mean, we can use our classic flood tables, throw everything out, soak it, walk away for a few hours, make sure it's good, hit it with the hose. Um, if you don't have a flood and drain table set up, which not everyone has anymore, a great solution is just to go put your drippers in the top of the cocoa block, turn on your irrigation and walk away for a while. You know, if you can plug your drain trays, let it soak up, but basically, you know, give yourself adequate time, soak that and make sure you can soak your blocks for at least 45 minutes to an hour, very minimum, and then go back and check them, you know, pick your pots up and go, okay, do I have enough water in here? Let me squish them this way. Let me squish them this way. Maybe I'll take one, dig my hand down in, make sure the bottom is actually fully fluffed up and not dry and compacted anymore. And just do your best to ensure that, you know, you have uniform saturation and that you've achieved full saturation. Because once we stick a plant in there, um, we're probably not going to want to have the opportunity to soak it for a long enough time in straight liquid to really get that, you know, hydrophobic compressed part fully saturated it just takes time so you know in, in my experience one of the biggest changeovers was if we we're doing a transplant in the morning it went from hey let's dunk and do everything we can to uh let's set these out on the table put the drippers in plug up the drain turn the drippers on for the volume of water we expect to need for these bricks and then walk away for a few hours like set it up and go to lunch you know, that's probably one of the biggest challenges is everyone wants to be efficient. And when it comes to initial hydration on cocoa, especially pressed cocoa or rock wool, there's just a patience factor and there's no way to get around that soak time or not, not with consistency. I mean, it's, it's easier to take passive action and walk away than it is to try to force water into a compressed cocoa brick. Awesome. And we also got a note here from Mikey. We have carts with three, four by go. two trays on each. Uh, we fill the trays with cubes and water them and then wheel them into the bedrooms and load the tables. That seems pretty streamlined. Yep, exactly. You know, you just basically build your system in a way that you give those blocks enough time to soak and adequate water and you're going to be okay. And one of the best practices you can do is just every time you hydrate a, a batch of blocks, if you, if you have access to a Solus or, you know, our standard T12 nose setup, 
just check it before you put it in. <laughs> you know, if you've got 300 or 500 blocks going in, go check 10 of them and say, Hey, is my SOP hitting these saturation levels we're looking for? Or, uh, did I grab my block and try to stick the probe in and still hit some dry stuff that's hard to push into, you know, just, just verify it and then tune it to make sure you're actually hitting your goals. I think, again, I'll go back to one of the, the biggest temptations, especially in any agriculture is to be as efficient as possible. And unfortunately, this is one of those things where uh, soak time comes into play. You, you know, the a time factor is there and we can't make it more efficient, just like we can't, um, for instance, you know, put a 20% shot on a rock wool block. The media has some physical limitations that does not allow that with the result we want. So we have to work with what's available, not try to force it. And you just can't rush it with some, with some medias. Awesome. Thank you for that. I'm going to keep going down our list. What is the DSM? Sorry, I'm, I'm definitely not asking this question right. Compared to EC on the Arroyo soil meter. So EC is actually measured in DSM, Siemens per meter. Um, the, the thing you need to look at, especially when it comes to mixing nutrients, is a lot of us are used to the classic PPM. And you need to establish whether you've been working on a PPM 500 or PPM 700 scale. So PPM 500 scale, 500 PPM equals one decisiemen of EC. PPM 700, 700 PPM equals one decisiemen of EC. So basically, it's not a terrible conversion, but whatever meter you've been using, you're going to want to check that when you're looking at making conversions because um, I will say, you know, when we're talking about PPM, if you've been using that for 10, 15 years, conceptually, that might be a little easier than, you know, decisiemens per meter. If we're looking at EC, that's resistance across a distance. PPM is uh, milliliters per liter. Like that's pretty easy to convert. Super or important. Milligrams also, per write liter, that sorry. down. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead, Seth. Oh, I was going to say milligrams per liter, not milliliters per liter, but... Um, there we go. So many details. Awesome. Thank you for that. We're getting more questions over on YouTube. I'm going to keep going. KG wrote in, how can I make use of the Solus 12 spot checker uh, without the data log capabilities? Can I check multiple pots or is it better to leave this sensor in until harvest? And they have some information here. They have three flower rooms, two strains per three gallon plastic pots uh, filled with 100% cocoa. Um, so there's a few things to tear apart there. Um, number one, moving around, you want to get the best averages you can, you know, if you're, if you're being as accurate as possible, the way to do it with the Solus would be to go get your water content right below your P1s hit right before your P1s hit. So if your P1s start at 10 AM, go in at 945, 950, get your water content in your EC. Then right after the end of your P1s, go get that same water content in EC for each room. And then at the end of the day, before lights off, go get your water content in EC again. And that's, that's just a baseline to see where we're at before watering, where we're at after watering, and then what our progress has been like throughout the day. And it's not going to give you the same granularity as 24-7 data logging, but it's going to be a start. And if you're hitting a point where you're starting to spend many hours a day on something like that, I would highly suggest going with, you know, Obviously, I'm going to say Arroyo because shirt, but, <laughs> you know, getting some 24-7 data logging in there so you don't have to spend so much time taking those measurements because it's one of those things, the more you take them, the more you're going to want to take them. 
But uh, if you're in, you know, three gallon plastic pots, for instance, one limitation you're going to have is having to, especially if they're round pots, cut a slot in that pot to be able to get a good measurement. And what that's going to make difficult is now you're stabbing that same spot in the pot over and over and over. So you're loosening the media in that one little small spot, and that's going to throw off your representative sample for the whole pot. So my advice would be to next time you pot up, if you can make sure everything is packed as tightly as possible. You know, if you're using like a 70% cocoa, 30% perlite mix, really pack that in there. And then cut a slot in your pot actually before you do that and put some duct tape on the inside and the outside so you can keep that media from falling out and try to keep some compaction in there while you move around to your different pots. Um, And they did come back with a little bit more information. When I measure two plants with my solus, I get a reading of, let's say, for example, 32% water content, but the pots look visibly different in terms of wetness of topsoil, 100% cocoa, four-gallon plastic pots. Okay. Um, so in light of that, you know, one thing to think about is where ideally where, I mean, number one, where are you sticking it? You know, you should be poking it in about two, two inches up the side of the pot, two and a half, maybe, but usually about two with our measuring tool. Um, what we're looking at is the part of the pot where the roots are actually actively uptaking water, which is generally in that bottom few inches where we have a suspended water table. And essentially like if you had, let's say 38% volumetric water content at two inches above the bottom of the pot, probably expect to see like, you know, 18 or less up at the surface, potentially very much less because we're trying to measure where gravity overcomes or cohesion overcomes gravity, actually to be more precise. So basically that water drains down, it gets held in a part of the soil, but always we're going to have a higher water concentration down here than up in the top of the pot because of gravity. And then once we add, you know, the inconsistencies in cocoa into it, that's a hard way to look at it. The only way to really do a good comparison there would be to use a load cell and say, okay, at the beginning of the day, my pot weighed this much. I irrigated. It weighed this many grams more. Each gram equals a milliliter. And then at the end of the day, it weighed this many grams less than at the end of my P1s or P2s. So, um, you know, I'll always go back to technology is really pushing this. And as a cultivator, I can definitely say my personal judgment is number one, always skewed by the tools I've been using, you know, right back to PPM 500 versus 700. And then it's also, you know, uh, subject to my own judgment. And for me personally, feeling the difference of, you know, 20 to 200 grams in between two pots that are a few gallons. I'm not accurate. And I know that. Awesome. Super important to keep in mind. Uh, And they also said, long time listener, first time Taros user, first time question asker. Thanks for all you guys do. Oh, thanks for your question. Awesome. Yeah, we're getting more questions over on YouTube. So I'm going to go down the list. Bong Rips wrote in. Do like that handle. (laughs) <laughs> Does an Arroyo subscription also include things like getting set up and access to support as we uh, get up as we get up to speed with the system? Yeah, what do we what do we offer with that? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, we do offer installation packages depending on your facility size. That obviously, you know, bigger facility, it's going to take more effort. <clears throat> but we are happy to come help you make sure you have a great installation, and then beyond that, you know, our our policy is to you know hold your hand, troubleshoot you through any installation and hardware learning. 
and then take you through approximately two months. So weekly eight to 10 total meetings right there, which is the goal is to hold your hand through the first full run you're doing from veg to harvest utilizing crop steering. That way, you know, as you're going through it, any questions you have, we can really try to get to them as soon as possible within, you know, that weekly meeting schedule. And then after that, we back off to monthly or quarterly meetings as needed. So the, the goal is to really give you, you know, one really good example of how you can crop steer in your own facility and then touch base and really, you know, keep you educated on what kind of changes you can look for. Anytime you've got questions about new things in the industry, you can always hit us up. And we're not, we're not strict. I work with a lot of people a lot more than that. And I'm happy to. Awesome. And I think you get like a, a dedicated client su success person or just how do they know um, who they work with? Uh, basically starting with your onboarding, you're going to have a dedicated client success manager. Um, you know, with the number of customers we have in the geographical uh, variety <laughs> all across the States now and even farther, we always do our best to accommodate. So Generally, whether you're East or West or anywhere in between, you're going to have a dedicated client success manager to start out with. Um, as people are busy or if you need more immediate attention, we're always willing to be flexible and help out with that. So, yep, you always have a solid contact. You can email or call and get a hold of us and make some things happen. We're here for you growers. And if you guys have ever hit us up on Instagram or emailed us, I'm sure you guys have made friends uh, with us over all the different platforms. So yeah, awesome. Thank you for that, Seth. Um, we're getting a lot of questions still over on YouTube. So Blaze wants to know, what's the real cause of nutrient burn? It seems like with crop steering, our EC can get way higher than what people thought was possible without any burning of the leaves. Yeah, so a, a lot of that classic nutrient burn that people saw um, had to do with pH in the root zone. <clears throat> so typically if I'm running a lot higher pH, I'm putting uh, ions in my media that might acidify the soil, especially if certain ions are being taken out at a great rate and I'm limiting runoff in order to achieve that high EC. So without eyes on what was actually going on, it's really easy to actually spike that EC and spike that pH down to the point where you have zero availability of any nutrients basically to the plant. And once we have that limiting factor, like let's say we're dipping down to that, you know, 4.0 to 5.0 uh, pH range. If I look at it and say, okay, I have a, I don't have a deficiency in what's in my solution, but I have an inability to, for, for the plant to uptake that, that uh, nutrient concentration. It doesn't matter. All the nutrients can be there, but the, the plant cannot take them up at say 4.8, 5.0. So that burn that I'm seeing is actually a major deficiency. And then on top of that, once we see really high EC, we're looking at an extreme level of osmotic pressure where the plant can't apply enough energy to actually pull water and nutrients into it. So basically, you know, the most distal parts of the plant, AKA the, you know, leaf margins, are where we start to see necrosis. We see death in that part because that's the part that it takes the most energy to get water and nutrients to. So it dies out, the, it dies out first. Awesome. Well, that's a great, great break. That is a great breakdown, Seth. Thank you for that. Um, we are going to keep going down our list. We actually posed a poll to YouTube a couple minutes ago. Our question was, since it's May the 4th, we wanted to know sci-fi showdown which show do you guys or movie do you like the best so of course we had to ask star wars versus star trek 
Um, and 60% came back with Star Wars as their favorite to watch and 40% for Star Trek. Awesome. Thank you guys. <laughs> we love hearing about anything uh, Star Wars, Star Trek theme. Uh, and Marielle just wrote in Star Trek. Oh, we got a Trekkie on the call. Nice. What about you, Seth? What do you, what do you feel like? Uh, I'm, I'm not a huge sci-fi person, honestly. If, if I'm going to comment on this trailer park, boys, keep it on the weed. I feel that. I feel that. Um, I feel that. We're on our own planet normally anyway. So awesome. Well, we are still getting questions over on YouTube. So I'm going to get to Diane's. He wants to know if I'm in vegeta- if I'm in the veg stage and I want fast growth so I can flip early, do I want to water vegetative, vegetative or generative? And switch back to generative, gener- wow, I'm having a hard time, you guys. Switch back to gen, first day of flip, will this work? Tell me if you want me to ask that again. Uh, no, no, I get what he's saying. And uh, uh, it's, it's, it's very strain dependent. So some strains are going to pop up real quick through veg, stretch a lot. And that's where we want to apply more of a generative strategy to keep try to keep that internodal stretch down. But, you know, flip side, like if we're looking to turn around in a seven to, t- seven to 10 day veg range, um, we're probably going to be running a little more of a vegetative strategy to really push that root growth and get those plants as vigorous as possible before transplanting them. So, uh, you know, yes and no strain and veg length dependent. If you're going two to three weeks, then it's going to be really strain dependent. Um, if you've got some more, uh, dwarf or semi dwarf strains, it'll always go back to the Mac one as an example, or I used to grow this one called Candyland that had the same thing. Yeah hammer it in veg with some vegetative cues to try to get it up enough so that you don't have to lower your lights on one bench to try to account for a plant that's only going to hit three and a half feet instead of six feet. So you do what you can do. Some strains that do have that semi-dwarf characteristic or dwarf characteristic, um, they just don't ever want to get as tall. So it's a little bit different of a game. And, you know, you might want to dedicate a bench to having shorter plants or do your best to monocrop, which, you know, we always talk about that, like it's a dream and it, and it really is for a lot of people because the market demand is such that a lot of us have to produce, you know, 10 plus strains just to stay relevant. And that's, that's just the way it is. That's just the way it is. But those are great notes, Seth. Um, Awesome. Blaze wants to know, could you guys give us recommendations on VPD based on veg or gen steering using the Arroyo VPD calculator? What advice do we have? So for uh, basically generative steering, we want to start out at that 0.6 to 0.9 range <clears throat> for week one. Week two, we're bringing it up a little bit, but never in gen are we really going past a 1.0. You know, 1.0, 1.1 on the ragged edge. Once we hit bulking, 1.2 to 1.4 is kind of our bread and butter range. And then 1.3 to 1.6 for ripening. And that is strain and environment dependent. You know, 1.2 to 1.4 is where we get maximum stomatal conductance. When we start to go above that, we might get a little bit of restriction, but for that ripening period, you know, especially when we have right now, um, a proliferation of different strains out there that have varying levels of mold and powdery mildew resistance, we'll be trying to keep that VPD a little bit higher, keep the room a little drier and try to keep the plants out of that range where they're actually, you know, susceptible, susceptible to botrytis or powdery mildew or aspergillus starting to form. Oh my gosh, you can't say those things three times uh, or else something bad will happen. No, awesome. don't make Thank me you. repeat myself. I'll say it different again. It'll be bad. 
I always cringe when I hear certain uh, certain terms on the show. Awesome. Thanks for that breakdown, Seth. Um, we had another question that came in on YouTube over the week. Uh, during the week, Leland wants to know, would you implement a different irrigation strategy for mom and veg plants in a 24-hour light cycle? Uh, you know, I uh, personally... I don't ever advocate for a 24 hour light cycle. Plants are adapted to take up more ions and nutrients during the dark period than during the light period. Um, that's an evolutionary adaptation that's happened throughout most plants over the past, you know, whatever, 400 million years plus. Um, I don't think there's any reason to run a 24 hour light cycle personally, you know, 18 to 20 is max I would do in veg. And part of that is I have experimented with 24 hours and I notice better results with 18 and 20 than 24 particularly when I can actually plug, you know, something like the T12 in and watch that EC uptake overnight. Um, a lot of times what we'll see is the lights go off, dry back slows down dramatically, but we still see EC being pulled out of the media at a rate that's way greater than what the dry back would suggest. So food for thought there. Um, yeah, that's, that's kind of my two cents on that. Get, get rid of your 24 hour veg and go to an 18 or a 20 give the plants a break. They never evolved for a 24 hour sun. And we haven't been uh, genetically evolving them at a faster rate to cope with that uh, at all. I mean, how long have grow lights been around 40, 50 years? You know, that's not enough time to really make something think there's 24 hours of sun. Give the plants a break. You guys heard it. Awesome. That was a great question. Um, we got another one over on YouTube. What water content and dryback percentage do you like to see during ripening? So let's say cocoa, for example, and this is with perfect BPD. Okay. Um, again, it all goes back to your plant to pot size. You know, if I'm looking at a, let's say a two gallon cocoa pot and it's, you know, one of my preferred mixes that really hits 55 to 65% of field capacity. Usually by the time I hit ripening, I can say, well, I'm going to be five to 10% lower just because I've had roots fill out a lot of the pore space in that block. Um, at that point, you know, like, let's say we started at 55, 45 to 50% at field capacity. I'm happy. And with any kind of crop steering, especially in the soil media, soilless media, unless we're trying to massively build EC, we're always trying to bring the media back up to field capacity with P1s. You know, that's, that's always our goal to really make sure we have enough water available to the plant and that there's no deficit there. So typically at that point in ripening, you know, if we've got a really good, if VPD is perfect and plant to pot size ratio is perfect. If I'm at, let's say, you know, 45%, I'm looking for a 20 to 25% dryback. And part of that's because I know that I'm plugged into, you know, one in 50 is a really awesome density for sensors when we get to a commercial scale. Uh, one in a hundred is a little more average. So if I look and say, okay, I'm, I've got this one plant I'm plugged into running a 25% dryback from 45 down to 20, that might be excessive. I want to go around and use like maybe my Solus and check all my other plants or not all of them, but a good portion, a good or a representative sample and say, all right, is 20% real or are some of them going down to that 15 and below mark where now I'm starting to worry about wilt. And that's where we want to look at that. And then the other side is, you know, at the end of that dryback. And that's why, you know, if you are especially using something like just the Solus before P1, after P1, and then before lights out, see where you're at. Because if right before P1, we go and say, hey, you know, we got a baseline of like a seven EC, seven decibels per meter. 
but right before watering, I'm hitting 22. That might mean like, Hey, we've got quite a bit, like maybe too much of a range there. And we want to put on a little bit of a corrective shot one to two hours before lights off to help like not drive back that extra 5%. That's pushing us from, you know, let's say we're in a nice seven to 12 range. Well, when I go from uh, that extra 5%, it takes me from 12 to 22. That's what I want to avoid is those extreme EC spikes. Because in terms of drought stress, the matrix potential is so low in any of these soilless medias that the plant doesn't actually experience drought stress until a pretty far extreme, you know, in that 15% or below range. But if EC has been built up in the media and it spikes at 20%, not 15%, we still have a similar effect where, you know, the water becomes so salty that the plant can't pull it in and it can't pull in ions either. So although it's not drought stress created the same way as over drying the plant, the actual result is the same because they can't, the plant can't uptake water. Super important, you guys. Oh my gosh. Great questions that are coming in. And we did get a shout out from our question asters question asker just now you you guys just gave me the biggest light bulb moment with that answer thanks yes. a bunch oh you guys um really great questions that everyone submitted this week and i feel like we're just learning so much on the show um but yeah we're about to wrap up the show we have a couple more minutes left um but we did ask our last question that we oh we just got more over on youtube nice. uh hold on let me get to this next one pat wants to know regarding pot size do you like a pot that's narrow and tall or shorter and wide? Um, so there's a few schools of thought to this, right? You know, if we're talking about plants from seed, <coughs> we're looking at a little bit taller and narrower pot just because we've got a taproot in play. Um, when we're looking at going from clones, which is, you know, what 995 to 9% of the cannabis industry is doing right now. Uh, what we're looking at is optimizing the pot shape for where the roots actually uptake water. And when we're looking at any specific plant, especially in a soil or soilless application, those roots develop what, you know, are called root hairs on the end of them. And those are little tiny extensions of a single cell that go out. That's actually where water's being uptaken and absorbed. So if we looked at like the optimal plant pot shape for, you know, having the maximum amount of water held in the space that we wanted, that's why, you know, we look at like a pyramid basically because if gravity holds the most water down here, that's where we want the most volume of our media. Um, and that's why, you know, well, you'll hear myself and quite a few other people advocating, especially when it comes to rock wool, not using, you know, the Hugo, but instead of going with a stacked block on a slab. And that's because like with the six by six by six, we have a square. Well, the part that the plant actually can uptake water from that suspended water table is still only six by six by, you know, maybe three inches thick. If we go to the slab, now that is massively bigger compared to that. So really, you know, in my opinion, if you're going with clones, a shallower, wider pot is better because you don't have a taproot, you have lateral roots, and those are going to take everything up from the root tips. So we want to maximize that space that we have a suspended water table and root tip contact with that water table. You guys write that down. I was. Um, Seth, what's the biggest pot you've ever seen people growing in? I know it's a weird question, but I've Se heard like 100 gallon pots. grown in myself? <laughs> Both. Do you, do you hear sharing? Uh, so, so myself, um, 
massive, massive raised beds and furrows in the ground, you know, like 300 plus gallons per plant. Um, that's not optimal <laughs> for crop steering, you know, as far as like trying to encourage bulking and stuff, but yeah, there's, there's all kinds of different styles out there, you know, and, and then once you get to outdoor production, you know, things kind of change quite a bit because our input values are different. Um, the amount of inputs in terms of labor we need to put into the plant potentially to get the acceptable yield change dramatically. So it's, it's all over the place. Uh, indoors though, going over about a five gallon pot starts to get pretty unmanageable to the point where you're asking for problems. Even with a five gallon pot, we're looking at a really long veg typically to get that little clone up to a flippable size. And then if we want to steer it, I mean, we're talking about a 12 foot tall plant in a five gallon pot to steer it the same way that we steer a plant in a one to two gallon pot. That's, you know, four to six feet tall. I love talking about pot size. Awesome. Well, that is it for our show today. Oh my gosh, we've gotten so many good shout outs, so many good questions. Um, we got another shout out. Oh my gosh, my brain loving this. And yes. then we got another one. Best podcast for growers by far. Oh my gosh, you guys, that is so nice. Oh, Making well, my day. I live for those aha moments. I love, I wish I could have seen it in your eyes. Oh, yes, yes. We love that. We love learning and we love teaching. Um, well, with that, um, Seth, do you have anything else uh, you'd like to to tell anybody this week or any updates or what's on oh, your agenda man. enjoy summer you guys i know everyone like a lot of a lot of the outdoor growers and greenhouse growers are working hard right now but man it's summer's here it's great we're all going to be growing having a good time and hopefully getting to enjoy life a little bit you know i think the the end goal for all of us is to uh work to live a little bit and not just live to work and i think it's easy for any kind of farmer to lose sight of that so Make sure you get out there and have fun. Don't let the grind kill you. Oh my gosh. That is a huge motto that we live by. We need to all live by a little bit more. And I agree. Awesome, Seth. Uh, what a great show. We got to learn so much about the industry with Jason and Keisha and Rachel out on uh, the road at Hall of Flowers. We learned so much here. Oh my gosh. Thank you guys for joining us. Well, I will go ahead and sign us off. Um, thank you for joining us this week for Arroyo's off Arroyo Office Hours. We do this every week on Thursdays. This is the best way to get answers from the experts and just join us live. To learn more about Arroyo, you can click through uh, the link that I posted in the chat earlier and get a demo from us, uh, and we can tell you all about our products and how we can help you grow. But as always, let us know if there's a topic you'd like covered in future office hours. You can post your questions anytime via the Arroyo app. Otherwise, feel free to, feel free to drop them in the chat. Shoot us an email here uh, at support.arroyo at metergroup.com or send us an Instagram DM. We'd love to hear from you. We record every session and we'll be emailing everyone in attendance a link to the video from today's discussion. It'll also live on the Arroyo YouTube channel. Like and subscribe while you're over there, please. And if you find these conversations helpful, feel, please feel free to share your with, the net, with your network and spread the word. Ugh. Well, what a day. Thank you, Seth, so much. And we will see you guys next week. Bye. Thanks, Mandy. See you all next all right. week. I'll stop the recording. Thank you. Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroya, the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software. Repeat successful runs and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at arroya.io.